bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. Good morning. Thank you for joining us for the fourth session in our thought leadership, Navigating the Energy Transition series, the role of grids in delivering net zero. I'm Anthony Iano, and I'm the global co-head of the Power Utility and Infrastructure Group at RBC. Today, I'm honored to moderate a panel of, of CEOs of three of the most innovative and respected companies in the global utility sector. First, we have Nick Akins. Nick Akins is Chairman, President, and CEO of American Electric Power. Under his leadership, AEP has been investing in modernization and security of the electric grid, resource diversification, and technology and innovation, enabling the transition to a clean energy future while preserving universal access to the grid for its customers. Through strategic partnerships and collaboration with customers, Nick has positioned AEP to redefine the future of energy and embrace the transformation sweeping the industry. Next, we have Dave Hutchins. Dave is Chief Operating Officer and incoming Chief Executive Officer of Fortis. As many of you are aware, Fortis is a diversified gas and electric company with operations across Canada, the US, and the Caribbean. They also own the largest independent transmission company in North America, ITC. Fortis has established uh, carbon reduction targets of 75% through 2035 compared to 2019 levels. And finally, I'd like to welcome John Pettigrew, the Chief Executive Officer of National Grid. National Grid's businesses supply gas and electricity safely, reliably, and efficiently to millions of customers and communities in the UK and the US. Under John's leadership, National Grid is driving change through engineering innovation and incubating new ideas with the power to revolutionize the industry. Thank you all for joining RBC and its institutional investors today and sharing your insights. We've allocated an hour for our panel today, and we want to jump right into questions so we preserve some time for audience participation. Nick, I'll start with you. You've been highlighting a $37 billion CapEx plan centered around wires and renewables and positioning a transformation of transmission and distribution. Can you discuss this transformation and how it was going to help both customers and rate and, and shareholders? Thanks, Nick. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks to RBC for having me on today. We're spending $37 billion. That's our capital plan going forward. And if you look at that capital plan, it truly is a transformation. Uh, so much previously, if you looked at it 10 years ago, it was mainly on generation, on scrubbers, SCRs, and all kinds of equipment like that. Today, we're looking at um, that $37 billion, 85% of it is going to be spent on uh, transmission, distribution, and renewable uh, applications. So it's going to be extremely important for us to continue that transition. You know, we have the largest transmission system uh, in North America, and the focus is ensuring not only the grid reliability and resiliency associated with the grid, but also addressing the changes in generation, the generation retirements. We're, we're, we're retiring, uh, well, we've retired over 50% of our coal-fired generation since since 2000, and uh, and certainly uh, we'll continue to uh, retire even more. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we have another 46% that we're, we'll be retiring uh, over the next few years. So, so it's really important for us to continue the transmission build out to support the grid, 
but also in the advent of renewables and renewable applications. Our North Central project is a perfect example of a large project, a large uh, uh, renewable project that's in place in Arkansas, uh, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. And, and really those kinds of transformations that are occurring uh, will, will uh, certainly be a part of the process focused on transmission to enable renewables, to enable the generation transformation to exist, and also from a distribution standpoint, looking at distributed energy resources and the expansion there uh, associated with service to our customers. So there's a whole different framework uh, regarding technologies at the transmission and distribution level they're going to inure to benefits for our customers in terms of resiliency, but also in terms of our shareholders and the consistent ability to invest. Thanks, Nick. And uh, Dave, maybe I'll ask you to add to that. With your sizable U.S. transmission footprint ITC, as well as your various electric distribution assets through North America, what's your vision for the grid of the future? And how does your investment plan support that vision? Yeah, the, thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me as, as well, uh, particularly because I'm I'm the CEO in waiting. So you, you got me a month early, but really appreciate uh, being part of the panel. Um, as you mentioned, ITC is, is our largest subsidiary and the largest independent transmission uh, company in the U.S. And with the 16,000 miles of transmission that we have across seven states in the Midwest, uh, in 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 the markets of MISO and SPP in particular, we're we're very well situated on a going forward basis for for the growth that we feel is needed to meet the clean energy role, uh, rules or clean energy uh, policy that's coming out um, across states across utilities uh, in that footprint. Um, so the, the grid of the future that, that's a great question on on how how do you define that and 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 what's the focus uh, pieces related to that. I put it in a couple of different categories. The first is when you think, and, and, and Nick mentioned this, when you think about the activity that's going on in the utilities uh, across America, particularly changing the generation mix from you know coal-based, fossil-based generation to renewables, um, that really changes the generation mix and obviously the, the generation location. Um, so that, that's definitely gonna drive uh, transmission investments, not just from, a, from an interconnection perspective, but you gotta get the energy from those renewable uh, resources to um, our customers, to, to the to the load centers. Um, but but also when you think about uh, the, the greenhouse gas reduction goals that most states have, they're economy-wide, not, not just in the electricity sector. And what most are looking to do is, is reduce greenhouse gases by electrifying other parts of the economy, particularly, say, the transportation sector. So we see uh, the importance of a very, very robust grid on a going forward basis um, so that you can not only integrate those renewables, but manage the increased demand that we think is coming uh, from, uh, I think, very broad electrification efforts. Um, but but probably as importantly, you want to make sure that that grid of the future is efficient, right? So you you have to look at ways of interconnecting the market because you know from a from a from a grid efficiency standpoint, bigger is better. If you have a bigger geographic footprint, it flattens out the load curves, it flattens out the renewable resource curves. Uh, that's better. It's it's more efficient. You can get more renewables on your system uh, for the same amount of transmission investment if you do it smart, right? So that's the other part is you got to make sure that you're you're using technology so that you're making a a grid that's smarter and can react to the the variable resources that we're going to have on a going forward basis. And this uh, the the one lesson that we learned in 2020. Not that we needed to learn it. Need to be and we surely didn't need to learn it to this extent. 
was the importance of resilience. Um, you know, that, that's different than, say, reliability. This is resilience to the things that we've seen this year, whether it's tropical storms, hurricanes, derechos, um, which is a new thing. I didn't even hear of those kind of storms before. Uh, fires, excessive heat waves. Every part of our country got hit with something special this year on top of COVID. And we, as as an industry, all realize that you know we we really have to focus on resiliency, storm hardening. Um, our, our our service is absolutely critical, and we have to make sure that we can withstand anything that nature uh, throws at us. And we're going to be relied on more on a going forward basis as we see more electrification across across our industry as well. And then lastly, I just add the the the, the, the last thing and probably the most important because you put all those pieces together. If you don't secure the grid, and I mean from a uh, from a cyber perspective uh, and a physical security perspective, if you don't secure it, then all of that's for naught. If you can have someone get in there and 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 do mischief uh, on on your grid, that's that's a problem, and that basically knocks out all the rest of the efforts that you do. Um, and and like Nick, we we have a very heavy capital plan on TND, and this is just just from an electric TND perspective. If you look at the transmission investments that we're making at ITC, it's five billion dollars over the next five years. We've got another two billion dollars in transmission across the other subsidiaries down here in Arizona and, and up in New York. Um, and then on a distribution side of things, we've got another five billion dollars over the next five years across our ten different um, electric utilities across North America. So two thirds of our capital budget is just T and D for the electric side. Um, so obviously a big focus. And all of those things when I when I talk about grid of the future, you know, the, the, you might think I was talking about solely the transmission grid, but it's really those same principles apply, and maybe even more so down at the distribution level. Yeah, thanks, Dave. You obviously touched on a lot of different areas there: cyber, weather, all the all the changes. You talked about electric versus distribution. You know, maybe maybe John, I'll ask you to expand. I, you know, you, you've you've certainly been vocal about you know changing to embrace cleaner energy, and businesses shifting to to operate in a more responsible way. But you've got the added complication of doing that in both electric and gas and figuring out how to meet those kind of net zero targets on electric and gas. Maybe you could talk about the two, how you're investing in both businesses, how they complement each other and, and what's your plans for both. Yeah, thank you, Anthony. And thank you for the invitation by RBC as well. Yeah, so we, um, you know, the way we've been thinking about it is we, we think about the journey that we're on for different parts of our business and how we can then enable it. So uh, as we look at the decarbonization of generation, our sense is that the pathway is pretty well set you can't be exact about the exact timing of how much offshore wind, how much onshore wind, how much solar. In the UK, it looks like the UK government's going to support nuclear. We had the 10-point plan a couple of weeks ago. But you can sort of see what the decarbonisation route looks like. And therefore, we're pretty clear about what investments we need to make to be able to support that decarbonisation that's going on. And in the back of our minds as well, we want to modernise the grid, so we're digitising the grid as well at the same time. The second driver and the second pathway we think about a lot is the electrification of transport. So we're spending a lot of time both in the UK and the US thinking about what does that mean for our network? How much load is going to transfer from liquid fuel onto to electricity? And how do we extend our networks to where our customers are going to want to charge their vehicles? So we're spending a lot of time on that. Again, we feel that the pathway for electrification, certainly for light duty vehicles, is pretty set. It's just the timing of the implementation of it and the utilization of it that's uncertain. But we've got very clear plans for how we can support that. 
the area I think is the most challenging around the net zero uh, for both the UK and the US is decarbonisation of heat. Uh, and this is the real challenge. And the one I think is least set in terms of what's the pathway. There's a huge amount of work going on at the moment around what's the role of hydrogen, uh, what's the role of renewable gas, and what's the mix between you know, electrification of heat and actually using those traditional gas fields as well. So at the moment, we're spending a significant amount of time doing pilots. So we've just actually launched a pilot to inject hydrogen into part of our transmission system in the UK to really test and work out what would you have to do to repurpose the network so it could provide either a blend of hydrogen or potentially all hydrogen to our domestic customers. And we're doing similar things in the US with renewable gas as well. So for us, we think about each of those journeys and we think about the investments that we need. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with what Dave said. You know, it starts with our investment plans. We're spending about five, five and a half billion pounds a year in our capital investment plans. It starts with reliability, resilience, asset health. And then we build on top of that what we need to do to support net zero, whether it's decarbonisation, digitisation, or exploring how we can take it's got a contribution to the net zero journey as well. Thanks, John. Um, maybe just adding to that, we've talked about, about stakeholders and we've talked about customers, we've talked about, about uh, shareholders. Maybe we can touch on regulators. And, you know, John, obviously you're in the middle of a, a regulatory review right now in the UK. You deal with multiple regulators in the US. Can you talk about the, the role of regulators in working with you on this energy transition and where, they're, where the goals and efficiencies may not be aligned with what with, with, with what you're trying to achieve? Anthony, I think I think we may have lost John there for a minute. And while while he re reboots and maybe rejoins, I, I'd like to pile on on the on the natural gas conversation um, because I, I think John brought up a, a lot of really good points. And you know, obviously, our our company's you know is like I said, two thirds of of our investments are in uh, TMD on the electric side, but we also own a large natural gas company in British Columbia. And uh, you know we've got a million customers over there, and uh, it, I think it's it's so imperative for um, all of our uh, utility industries, not just the electric side, and, but on the gas side, to be thinking about this as a comprehensive approach to decarbonization. And uh, you know I, I mentioned electrification two or three times, um, but that's just that's just one story. There is ways to decarbonize the natural gas stream as, as John laid out there. And that's absolutely what the natural gas industry has to be focusing on. It's, it, is, it is about how do we continue to, to lower that footprint of that delivery mechanism and utilize that extremely valuable uh, infrastructure that we have across North America for a resource that we have right here in North America. I mean, natural gas is plentiful across the entire North American continent. And then you can take and clean it up a little bit at a time and see how, see the economics of it, whether it's renewable natural gas, whether it's hydrogen, like John mentioned, um, or there's, you know, you, you can't forget too that natural gas is a decarbonizing fuel. When you think of uh, LNG and the ability for that to offset other liquid fuels that have a much higher greenhouse gas footprint, um, it's, it's gotta be part of that story on a going forward basis. I was hoping to stall long enough for John to get back on. And that's all, that's all true, David. I appreciate you, you you jumping in there. And you know, maybe we'll start with Nick on that regulatory question. Clearly, you're, you're operating in 11 states. You have to deal with a, a number of constituents in addition to shareholders and customers. How do you how do you balance that? How do you see their 
you know, their mm-hmm. support and and the, the various politics that you have to deal with in 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 helping or hindering your agenda for for, for revolutionizing the grid. Yeah, first first I think you definitely have to have a plan. Uh, and that plan needs to be discussed before you file rate cases and all the other activities. The ongoing discussions with regulators is critical through this through this process. And as we've gone through it, certainly you've gone gone through areas where you want to make sure from a transmission distribution resiliency standpoint that you have mechanisms in place for concurrent recovery riders and so forth for uh, for assorted things. But also you have to focus on the future. You know, with the technology that's changing, the use of analytics, the use of uh, those kinds of activities at the customer end, we've got to really demonstrate to our regulators that that there is uh, this notion that you can deploy capital uh, to reduce customers' bills and at least give them the opportunity to reduce customers' bills. Because so many times you hear from regulators that it, you're just trying to spend more capital to, to produce more earnings. Uh, well, yes, that's part of it, but 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 obviously we're trying to do it to lower customers' overall bills and give them the opportunity and the information they need uh, to be able to support that. So we're doing pilots of various technologies at the customer end um, to show the benefits of that, and then it's it's a critical part of the process. And then the other part, I think, with regulators, and we're primarily we're in eleven states primarily, uh, and and uh, uh, different. Uh, there are different styles associated with it, different demographics, different issues that are dealt with. But some of those are the same in terms of the need to move to a clean energy environment. Our investors expect it. Our customers expect it. And I think even the red states that we're involved with primarily are starting to realize that a transformation is occurring and that we need to have that discussion about how we transition. Now, with a national standpoint that's going on, uh, assuming that the that the Republicans keep the um, keep the uh, Senate, uh, you'll probably have a more administrative approach to all this through the EPA and others. But the states will certainly have to be a big part of that process that we have communications with to to talk about that transition and that you can, for example, run this generation, the twenty four seven generation, in a different method uh, to really provide it sort of like an insurance policy where they don't have really high capacity factors, but they're there when you need it. And then you can deploy more renewables uh, to, uh, to reduce, reduce emissions and reduce carbon uh, as well. So there's those kinds of discussions we have to have along every facet. And our states are moving different directions too. Virginia has a requirement for uh, 100% renewables by 2050. Um, and then you see other states that are starting to pick up on the, on the notion that yes, Renewables are good because um, in Oklahoma, Louisiana, uh, Arkansas, Texas, and so forth, they have natural gas prevalence, but they also recognize the place for renewables, and certainly North Central is an example of that. So you're seeing that continue. And then also customers themselves are asking and having discussions with the regulators about how they can move more quickly from an ESG standpoint and move to these clean energy environments. And that's why microgrids and other types of activities that we're involved with are starting to become more uh, of an environment as well uh, that produces renewables, produces transmission investment and and resiliency associated with all that. So uh, I think it's a clear, I mean, it clearly is a change that's occurring across the board and everybody recognizes it, but it's a matter of having those communications on a regular basis 
to reinforce the steps being taken and uh, with a common view. Maybe we should move to a question dealing with that, which is clearly the world has had to adapt to, uh, to, to COVID and working from home. Um, it's had an impact to all of our businesses. You know, maybe, maybe Nick and, and David, if you could share with us, what do you think, are these permanent changes? Are we gonna be doing Zoom calls and Zoom EIs for the foreseeable future? And if so, what does that mean for the grid of the future? I, I think certainly, and, and David, I know you probably have comments on this as well. Um, and John, if you can get in, but, <laughs> there, but there's, there's obviously a lot of activity um, associated with uh, uh, you know, the process of how we deal with COVID, what post-COVID looks like. And I think it's changing dramatically the way we look at even our system load, uh, where you have industrials, commercials, residential, residential, um, has been up considerably because of the stay-at-home stay work environment. And, and we expect, and actually there's companies that are already saying that they're going to continue to maintain that work-from-home environment. may not be the entire employee population, but certainly you can probably say 25 to 25% to a third will continue to work from home permanently. And, I, and that says that we're going to have to think about the resiliency of the distribution grid uh, as well. Uh, in particular to respond to that, particularly if you have further electrification around transportation with EVs and other activities, and you're, you're depending upon these kinds of environments that we're on today to be able to in, interface on a regular business relationship perspective. Now, I think there's gonna continue to be, um, you know, offices may be more like conference centers as opposed to, you know, the office centers that we have today, but certainly we'll have continued work from home, continued obligations associated with getting employees together uh, to be able to focus on different initiatives. Um, we will have another face-to-face -face EEI and face-to-face -face, um, conferences, but even from a board perspective, uh, we're looking at, uh, are there times to have virtual meetings? Is there a couple of meetings a year, for example, that you could do that? So the world is changing. And uh, certainly I think the advancement of digitization and automation was certainly accelerated uh, with COVID, and we're going to take advantage of that. Yeah, it it, it really is going to change one how we do business, and I, I agree that it's it's not going to be like it was before. Um, we're not going to travel like we we used to. Um, we're not going to go across the country for a you know an afternoon meeting anymore. Um, we have, which is kind of, I guess, sort of the funny part is that we never thought of this before. <laughs> that's the that's the strange part. It's a, we had to have a pandemic before we realized that we were probably traveling too much. Uh, but at the end of the day, there, there's just going to be this nice mix where I think we're going to end up being more efficient. Uh, we're going to be able to spend our time uh, doing the things that we need to do. We'll travel when we have to travel because at the end of the day, I mean, look, we're all social creatures. We got to get in the same room. You got to build that level of trust. You got to do that with your team. You got to do that within your industry. Um, you, you have to have those relationships built. And the reason that we're, you know, in, in essence, I'll, I'll say surviving during the pandemic is we're surviving on 
what I'll call the cultural collateral that we have built up over the years. Like Nick and I have seen each other probably, you know, 20 times at EEI meetings. So, you know, I, I know him and I know him from the industry and you're the people that you work with, you've built up those relationships, that trust, you have to have some way of doing that. And that's, that's that part where we will be getting back together. We just won't, we just won't do the things that are, that are not efficient anymore. But I, you hit on a, on a great point, um, Nick, and that's the whole, you know, what does this mean from a load and a planning perspective? You know, to talk about the grid of the future and you, and you think about the transmission system, but you get down into the distribution side of things and you think about electrification, electrification of vehicles, um, all of a sudden you have a lot more demand at houses. Well, guess where some of that demand is coming from, particularly in, you know, peaky areas like uh, Arizona. In the summer, residential load is extremely weather sensitive. But guess what? If everyone's at work during the day, it didn't much matter. When everybody's at home during the day, we see that peak get even peakier. And that's something that now we have to start planning for within our distribution system, within our generation system. It changes the capacity planning. It, can, it, it changes distribution planning. And right now, we're still sitting here going, okay, well, we're not thinking everybody who's working from home right now is gonna be working from home forever. But let's say half, because for us, for the utilities, we probably have, you know, at most half of our employees working from home because we still have folks out in the fields of power plants, et cetera, that still have to keep the grid operating. So you're right now. I think you're right on. It's going to be about 20, 25 percent of our workforce is going to be working from home, you know, probably 80 percent of the time. And the 20 percent is coming in for training, you know, that relationship building, uh, things like that. Yeah, it's actually been pretty amazing to me, right? When we think about five years ago and how we were all concerned about the stability of the grid, would it be reliable with the influx of all the renewable power that was coming onto the grid? You know, with all the, the, the you know, Dave, you mentioned earlier all the challenges we've had from a weather perspective. But, you know, at least from my seat, it seems like the grid has gotten a lot more reliable and we haven't had to deal with some of those issues. Now, have we been lucky or or have has the investment that we've been making over the last five years really put us in that position? And what does that mean for the next five years as we adapt to storage and other and, and the continued proliferation of renewable power? So Anthony, can I have a, re a rebuttal to your, your commentary that the grid's as reliable as it ever was kind of thing? Um, so you, you, you've probably all noticed that uh, there were rolling blackouts in California, which is right next door to, to uh, you know, our, our Arizona utilities yeah, here. Yeah. And of course, in, in that part of the grid, you know, with one one big state, obviously, like California, which is most of the grid in the southwest has a problem and we all have a problem. Um, and it is it is just making sure that it's all about planning, right? So we know, you know how those resources react, and we just have to make sure that we're being smart about when we shut down these fossil plants, that we have a replacement before. And I would say, and this is, this is what I tell our regulators, I said, okay, we've got a, a real aggressive plan down here in Arizona to retire coal, replace it renewables and storage. I said, but we're going to do this at, a, at, at the right pace. And we're also not going to shut down those plants or commit to not running them 
until after we've gone through a summer with them sitting there idle and hot standby so we know we can bring them back if we need to because that's that's really the issue it was, it, it was the lack of coordination regionally um and it's the it's that slow evolution of getting storage on the grid we just have to make sure that we do that right i don't know if john's back but i'll, I'll comment some more on that i i, I really believe that uh, we're going to see really substantial changes uh, from how the system operates. And that resiliency aspect is critical. Uh, you think about the work from home environment um, that's that's emerging. Uh, we always we always focused in many cases in, in rate making standpoints, focus on industrials and commercials and, and residential customers. Um, obviously, the distribution is, is important, but now it's even more important. And you can just think about it, think ahead in terms of even the rate making aspects of that, where customers usually residential customers subsidize um, industrial and commercial rates. So you're going to have to really think about um, how that gets levelized, particularly if if uh, individuals uh, at home are paying uh, for uh, obviously they're not turning on their uh, uh, turn off their heat or, or cooling uh, while they're at work anymore because they are at work. So there's some fundamental shifts that are going to occur uh, along the way that we have to be very cognizant of. I believe the system has, is is getting better because of the hardening aspects that have been recognized, particularly in hurricanes and so forth. A lot of hardening has been done uh, of the grid in recognition of that. Uh, but still, we have a long way to go. I mean, for, just for AEP, our transmission system—we spend three billion a year on transmission—and um, but that that changes our average age from you know 55 years to 54 years old. So so it's it's just a, a long way to go um, to really reinvigorate this grid to where it needs to be. Particularly, as you said, Anthony, the more devices that are connected to it in a different way. Um, certainly is going to drive a difference in how we plan and how we operate uh, the grid of the future. John, obviously we've been we've been discussing some of the technology and, and dealing with renewables as, as, a, as, a, as a system operator. Maybe you can help add on how you manage through some of the intermittency that might come from increased penetration of renewables alongside the changing demand patterns with EVs and batteries. And how are you thinking about that? And, you know, are, 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 or do we have the right plans for 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 positioning for the for the grid of the future? Yeah, thank you, Anthony. Apologies, seems to have some technical problems. Um, I mean, one of the things that we've done in the UK, so we are the uh, the system operator as well in the UK uh, as national grid, is we've set an ambition to be able to operate the system with zero carbon generation by 2025. Uh, and interestingly, just before I dropped off with the technical problem, uh, I did hear Nick starting to talk about COVID. An interesting thing, interesting in the UK, one of the things that COVID brought for us as a challenge as the system operator was we saw really low demands and really high renewables in the UK. So actually, for much of the summer, we were operating with pretty much offshore wind and solar. Uh, and it forced us as the system operator to accelerate a lot of the tools that we knew we know we're going to need in five years time. But actually, COVID accelerated some of that towards us. So it was actually quite a good experience for the electricity system operator. What we're thinking about at the moment is what are those tools that we need to develop? Uh, one of the challenges, obviously, with intermittency is that we lose the inertia in the system. And therefore, we need to think about how we can develop new products and services that can provide frequency response and reserve much more quickly than historically they've been uh, being provided. 
So that's been a real focus. Similarly, things like Black Star to be able to restore the system when you have outages. Uh, traditionally, that's been done by fossil fuel generation, and that's not going to be there in the future. So we're looking at developing new ways of doing that through, we've actually got interconnection in the UK between mainland Europe and the UK. So potentially using interconnection with mainland Europe to do that, uh, as well as actually using some other new, uh, some, uh, some offshore wind and onshore wind to do it as well. So our aim is by 2025 to have all those products, all those tools developed so that we're ahead of the game, expecting to be in a position where actually the whole of the network is reliant on zero carbon generation by 25, but the system operator will be ready to go by then. So the scenario where we have uh, complete reliance on, on or, or, or where most of our generation is coming from sources like offshore wind um, and having a, a mismatch between supply and demand where you actually have an oversupply situation is the, is the, is the Goldilocks scenario for hydrogen. Is it, are, are we getting you know, close to the point that hydrogen can get economic and that therefore we, you know, is this, is this a, you know, something we're looking at over the next 10 years or is it a 20 or 30 year uh, trend to get to hydrogen? Well, certainly the way we look at it, and, and it really depends on where you're located, right, um, in terms of the market and, and, and market prices. But for us, uh, we look at hydrogen technologies and we believe that they'll probably become price competitive in about 10 years. Um, today, uh, it's much higher than what um, any of the other resources provide. So, um, but we'll continue, obviously, to focus on, uh, on, on the technologies and see how they advance. But 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 um, certainly uh, it'll take it'll take time. I'd, I'd just jump in and say I think it, it, it Nick's right about the the regions. And when you think about the Southwest and the high penetration of solar that we have in the Southwest, we'll probably be one of the first areas where it starts making sense from a from a storage perspective because we have so much excess solar. I mean, it, in the middle of the day, you either have to you know you have to ramp down your solar or you have to figure out something to do with it. So you, in essence, have anywhere from free to um, pe people paying you to take energy uh, in the middle of the day when when you have excess solar. If you can if you can take that and turn that into hydrogen, it changes the, the entire price dynamic dynamics of of our entire grid over here in the, in the southwest. And in hydrogen too, and it, particularly when we have you know natural gas, a lot of natural gas combined cycles down in the southwest as well, is if you can put that in to storage and then use it in existing assets, that changes the entire economic view of it as well. So now you're just talking about, wait, well, you get cheap, free, or they'll pay you to take uh, energy. You can turn that into hydrogen, so you need an electrolyzer. You have the existing asset to turn it back into electricity. Now you have a whole different economic story than if you were to you know, design something from tip to tail to make green hydrogen and then end up making electricity out of it again later. Um, that's, that's, that's a pretty expensive uh, trail there. Um, so that 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 to me gets me excited too because uh, John John brought up something. Um, I guess we're probably all engineers on here, but just the the conversation around inertia and and that's so important. And when you talk to the grid operators and the folks who are dispatching these units, and you lose that inertia of that rotating you know generators out there on the grid, it really changes the dynamics and the stability of the grid. So having the ability to take that hydrogen, put it right back into something that's got inertia, clean that up, blend it to whatever you know percentage makes sense, and now you've got a you know nice uh, you know clean clean storage resource. 
I mean, the only thing I'd add to that, Anthony, is I mean, it's quite interesting developments have been going on in the UK over the last few weeks. So the UK government's announced this 10-point plan, and one of their commitments is to be in a position to produce five gigawatts of hydrogen by 2030. And the way that they're thinking about it is initially they're thinking about blue hydrogen. So depending on the sort of what where, where your carbon dioxide is, is coming from, where the gas transmission system is, in the UK, we've got these industrial clusters, so they're thinking about whether you can take natural gas into a into a region, strip the carbon dioxide out using CCUS, and then use the hydrogen in that industrial area. And they're aiming to get about five gigawatts by 2030, which is quite ambitious. It require uh, quite significant, I think, technology price falls, particularly around CCUS. But the way that they're thinking about it is blue hydrogen first is probably more economic, and then green hydrogen will follow as we see more and more renewables and more spare capacity with intermittency. Thanks, John. And, and maybe, maybe maybe you can talk about a little bit of the balance, right? You've got the government with their initiatives. You're trying to do things with respect to customers and shareholders. And then you've got the regulator that you deal with as well. So maybe you can give us some comments on that balance. How do you see overcoming some of the challenges with the regulator and maybe how that differs between your operations in, in, in the UK versus the US? Yeah, so if I, I'll start with the UK. Um, I mean, many people on the call will know that uh, we had quite a challenging what's called a draft determination from our regulator, and we, we pushed back quite strongly on it. And the reason for that is we think it's really important that there is alignment between what our regulators are trying to achieve and what our policymakers and government are trying to achieve. And in our draft determination, we felt there were three areas where there was misalignment. First of all, at a time of massive change, when we got decarbonisation going on, we don't think it's sensible to increase the risk on the network. So we need to maintain the asset health and the resilience of the networks. And our regulator and, our, and we had a slightly different view around that. But we're, we're arguing quite strongly, when you're going through a period of change, don't undermine the foundation of the reliability of your network. Secondly, I think it's really important that your regulatory framework reflects the policies that are being developed. So there are times when austerity is right and the focus should be all around reducing costs to customers. But at the moment, you know, we're in a period where actually we want to encourage investment to enable the connection of all this renewable. So in the UK, the UK government's committed to 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. We currently have just less than 10. So that's a massive engineering requirement, a huge amount of infrastructure investment. And therefore, we feel that the regulatory framework should be set to encourage investment so it can be done efficiently and quickly. Uh, and then thirdly, of course, you get to the financial package. So if you want to encourage investment from the private sector, it needs to be competitive internationally so that people will want to invest, whether it's in the UK or the US. So for us, we've been spending a lot of time working with government and regulators, trying to get them to align. Um, one of the things we've been debating is whether the, the statutory duties that regulators have today are too narrow. So quite often, regulators' duty is always to the customer and the cost for customers today. But I think in the industry that we're in, over the next 30 years, there's a role to play in ensuring not only that we protect customers today, but actually we protect customers in the future. And that means encouraging investments so we minimize the cost of net zero. So that's been a big debate that we've been having in the UK. In the US, we're very lucky we operate in the Northeast, where actually we've got really ambitious policy statements in New York and in uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So they're very committed to net zero. Um, in New York and Massachusetts, in fact, we have legislated for it. Rhode Island are looking to get to zero carbon generation by 2030. 
So we're working with the regulators, but we're trying to be helpful as well, I think, to Nick's point, which is, is that base level of investment that you have to do. And then everybody wants to get to net zero, and that requires investment in the networks. But you have discretion about how quickly you do it. So you have to reflect the economy and what's going on. So at the moment in my territories, you know, they've been really hard hit economically by COVID. And therefore, it's not sensible to have large rate increases to support investment at this time. But if you take a long-term view of it, you can shape your capex to modernize the grid, to support the renewables and do the digitization, and therefore manage the bill impacts for customers as well. So uh, really important in our view that you get that alignment between the economic regulator and the policymakers. You know, if I could jump in, John makes a great point. Um, the regulators uh, really, I don't know that they're actually prepared for the changes that are occurring and it's becoming so convoluted in terms of the technologies that can deploy. Matter of fact, like in, in Texas and ERCOT, um, the wires company can't put in uh, a storage um, legislatively. So, and you're seeing energy storage and, and obviously we've had even arguments in, in PJM about that uh, in terms of, can, is it a transmission resource? Is it, is it um, a, a generation resource or what? I, I think these technologies have become, become more convoluted all the time. And if you really want a resilient, strong grid, you've got to look at it from, from end to end from that perspective and determine what's best. Uh, and, and the customers actually will tell you too. Uh, we have customers that want storage but we can't we can't do it in in ERCOT, Texas because um, of, of legislative uh, issues. So uh, and the regulators um, will need to broaden their swim lanes in relation to this because a lot of times when you even when you think about electric vehicles and charging stations and and all the infrastructure to support a more clean energy environment, no, it's not really going to get done unless the utilities. Uh, are able to put this, uh, put these packages together to ensure that 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 society, overall society, can benefit, not just the people who can afford it. So uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done from that perspective. Yeah, that, that, that's obviously helpful, and that's that's it's a challenge that we we all need to deal with. Uh, I think it's you know clearly that's probably slowed down the pace of electric vehicles, and we'd like to see more. Uh, a, a greater proliferation of, of electrification. Do we see that changing in the in, in the short term? And are is that an area that you know, do we reach a point where where you know, the the electric vehicle is a two way source of power and and you, you, we're pulling power off the off the vehicles in the day and using them at night? How how ambitious can we be on that front? I'll, I'll jump in on, on that one. I, I think uh, the whole vehicle to grid conversation has been happening for a while, um, but we, I think, have, have reckoned, one, you got to have a lot of electric vehicles, um, and then you have to have the infrastructure, particularly the communication infrastructure, to control a lot of vehicles. And, you know, that varies greatly by uh, jurisdiction and by utility. But at the end of the day, um, you know, us as, as utilities and and seeing the, the pending EV um, growth coming and and it's you know we can sit back and go you know flashback five even ten years ago and we were talking a lot about electric vehicles and how they were coming and they didn't but now we know and we can see we can see a manufactured out there right we can see the ramp up of of electric vehicles it's coming and and we as a as an industry you know in, in essence kind of need to hurry because we can't let the adoption of electric vehicles get ahead of our ability to support those and to do it effective and efficiently. 
because when you think about how you um, how you deploy electric vehicles in the charging infrastructure, we of course as, as in in the utilities would like to be um, a, a part of that because at the end of the day we know where you should put them and we know the rate design that you should have and and if you can do things like vehicle to grid and actually get energy back on the grid and and provide some uh, support for your local distribution network. You absolutely should be doing that. And if we don't kind of start moving on the policy front, uh, and, and this isn't, you know, obviously policy comes down to jurisdiction by jurisdiction. But if you can align some of the, the, the policy across North America, um, then, then you're going to be in a much better spot. And when you think about what you need to do to align that policy, you need you need partners and you need the automotive partners, you need the charging network partners, you need utility partners, you need other electric vehicle advocates to get together and try to push policy um, so that we can get a fast, efficient uh, adoption um, and deployment of electric vehicles. And that, that's that's what I think we as an industry need to focus on. And we have we have been. Uh, there's the Alliance for Transportation Electrification, which all three of us, our companies are all, uh, all part of that, um, which is pushing exactly for that. It's a partnership of folks who understand the importance of electric vehicles, understand the importance and the need to electrify um, a lot of our transportation sector in order to meet the, you know, the lofty greenhouse gas reduction goals that we all have and our governments all have. Um, so that that's that's where that's where we need to focus, and we are we are seeing you know some success. Um, not I wouldn't say broad or consistent success, but we are seeing different jurisdictions that are allowing and even encouraging utilities to get in there and put in charging infrastructure. Because at the end of the day, all you got to do to get a utility to put in the infrastructure is tell us to do it. We have the access to capital. Um, we, we know how to we know how to deploy infrastructure. Um, all we need is 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 a nod, and off we go. So we're starting with pilots in a lot of our jurisdictions, and if we're successful with those with those pilots, if we show our regulators, our customers that we're doing it right, we're doing it efficiently, we're going to have a bigger role to play there, and that will help the adoption of electric vehicles, you know, across the board. You know, I think the big point here is, though, the utility can actually accelerate the benefits of a clean energy economy um, because we're used to bringing stakeholders together. We're used to having discussions about what needs to be done for society as a whole. And and if the, if the government and environmentalists really focus on this, fo focusing on the utilities, we can get it done. And I think I think. Uh, no pun intended, but there's no question electric vehicles are accelerating. Uh, there's there's no question that's going to continue to to prosper. You see so many new models coming out. Um, even I'm confused on on uh, which ones. But I have an electric vehicle, but it's 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 great to be able to to pass by a gas station in the cold weather and not have to get out uh, anywhere. And and I I think I think just just the the realization of what it means to have an electric vehicle, but also uh, the ability to put, as, as, as was mentioned earlier, David talked about this, putting the systems in and putting the support mechanisms in. That's why I think all three of us are probably so bullish on our industry when you have the generation transformation that's occurring, movement to renewables, movement to infrastructure and hardening of infrastructure, and then the advent of electric vehicles and what it means from the transportation sector. I think I think uh, you, you have to be bullish about this industry and its ability to deploy capital. I'm just going to say a few things just in support of my colleagues, actually. So, I mean, I 
I think pace is incredibly important. So when you look at all the studies as to why people don't buy an electric vehicle today, number one is always price. Number two is what they call range anxiety. The car in a public space, when the model's out there and prices are coming down, they're going to be cheap enough that, and lower than the traditional car prices. So it's really, I think, imperative that actually policy gets aligned so that we can move forward with building the infrastructure so that people can have confidence that when they do buy an EV, that actually when they're on that long journey that they actually can charge it and charge it in a sensible time which means you know putting enough power in uh, to do fast charging so it doesn't interrupt their journey as well and i think just to next point as well because because i think evs is about creating a charging network and the danger is you end up with a bit like a broadband system where you get really great broadband where there's a lot of commercial opportunity and high income but actually if you want to provide a network for a really important role i think for networks to to fill that so actually everybody has access to evs and and and, and on the on the technology uh, right john obviously we've seen a significant amount of, of offshore wind that's been developed in the uk what are the what are the what are the uh, what's the impact to the grid there and do you see that being a continued trend that we'll see in the us yeah so the um so in the UK, we've got about 10 gigawatts of offshore wind and about 12 gigawatts of, um, of onshore, I guess it's just under 50 gigawatts. Um, from an engineering perspective, there's some real challenges uh, to deliver that in the timescales. So what we've been looking at is, you know, if you truly believe in net zero and you believe that there's going to be significant amounts of offshore, like 40 gigawatts, actually what you do is you create an offshore network. And then you'd limit the number of onshore connections you need. It's much more, from an engineering perspective, it's actually much lower cost and actually more likely to deliver that infrastructure in time. So those are some of the debates that we're having in the UK at the moment about how do we move from where there was, you know, it was a sensible system, but it only worked when there were small volumes of offshore wind to one in which actually you need to fundamentally change the nature of the network. Um, as I look to the US, I see there's real opportunity. Obviously, there's quite a lot of activity in the Northeast or, or in terms of offshore. But again, I think if you're going to get to the volume, the opportunity to think about how you create offshore networks, start connecting wind farms to those networks. And I think that is a much more effective and cost-effective uh, you know, situation for customers as we move forward. Yeah, and, and, and I always like to say that Offshore wind is as much a transmission project as it is a wind project. So um, it, it, it's interesting that we, we I guess we are, we are all engineers on this call, which is which is interesting. I, I you know, about five years ago, I had the fortune to go over to, to China at the at the invite of the chairman of State Grid, and he had a vision that you know why why aren't we just building long transmission lines and putting all the solar on the equator and all the wind in the uh, on the poles um you know as as maybe a, as a last question for the three of you i'll say is as engineers if we put regulation aside and obviously i had to educate him on the, all the different regulators that we have to deal with that to make something like that happen you know what would be you know one thing you'd like to see happen over the next five years to 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 enhance the grid and 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 have your your, your vision of the grid in the future uh, come come to fruition. You know, I had that same conversation with Chairman Lou over there, um, <laughs> and and um, 
I really believe, uh, and really, you look at China and you look at what we're doing. Um, you know, customers customers really don't want to know we're there. Um, and and you know, while China is looking at larger and larger transmission and and uh, one gig transmission and all that kind of stuff around the world, um, the the point really is is that that even transmission uh, uh, to get uh, uh, roadway space. Um, we're actually going the other direction uh, with our bold transmission lines. We're trying to go smaller, more compact, but able to deliver more energy. I think in the future, um, we have to really think about what our system looks like in the future to be not as, as obtrusive, not only to, to our customers, but the environment as well. And so for us to continue moving forward, we're going to be in partnership with our regulators uh, to ensure that we're not just answering the needs of the electric system, but answering societal needs, um, because there's no doubt electrification is going to drive those needs for us to be able to provide resiliency, reliability, and certainly at a reasonable cost to our to our customers. But then you expand into transportation, you expand into broadband, um, those types of activities that you that leverage the resources that we're putting in place. Those are clear opportunities for us to have a dramatic impact on, on really some of the ills that society has today. You know, when we, when we, um, uh, when we went to a, a work from home environment, you know, people continued to pay their electric bills. Well, they didn't, I mean, it's not because they care about the utility, but they cared about Netflix and all the other things that they were doing uh, to ensure they could do it. And even today, the EVs, the charging stations, and other things like that is because Americans will want to drive their cars. They'll want to be able to take advantage of electric vehicles. Battery technologies will move ahead because of electric vehicles, and we'll benefit from that. And we just need to make sure that we're we're part of that process to ensure that can can be accelerated and get uh, get really the the policy changes that that people have been talking about for years. We can get it done. John, what's on your wish list? I'll, I'll make two comments. As I think about networks actually going forward, um, I mean, the first thing, in my view, is that you know the traditional boundaries of transmission and distribution are, are, are collapsing. So you have to think about networks from a whole system perspective. We're going to see a lot more generation local than we've ever seen before. We're going to see a lot more two-way flows on the networks. Well, well, David, you've got 30 days now, right, or 29 days to figure out what you're going to your vision is going to be, but maybe you can give us the uh, the thirty second version before we we sign off. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the short story is aligning policy objectives and actual processes so that we can meet those policy objectives. Obviously, renewable energy is going to be huge. I love the idea of the super grid. Um, you know, we got way more solar than we can use down here. There's way more wind than the, the Midwest can use over there. We've got to figure out ways of interconnecting those markets um, and flattening that resource curve um, and flattening the demand curve at, at the same time. Um, you know, I, I want to pull on a thread that, that Nick said earlier, and that's the this whole conversation of if you want to if you want to clean society, you need to just pull us in. We, we're the ones who can implement so much of that. When you think about the greenhouse gas reduction goals that everybody has, the electron is the mightiest thing out there and how you create it, transmit it and dis distribute it. If you're in that value chain, which we all are, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like Nick, I'm, I'm really bullish on, on the future. That's what, that's what it's going to be all about. Now, the conversation that we have to get better at 
as a as a utility industry is explaining stop looking at your electric bill well one don't look at your rates because that's that's irrelevant you need to look at your bill but don't just look at your electric bill look at your pile of bills you got on your desk at the end of the month that you got to pay and see that what you're saving on your gasoline bill heating bill whatever it is 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 more than what your electric bill is increasing and that's that's where we got to start telling that story better about wallet share not you know electricity bill rates etc because when you get there now all of a sudden the conversation gets aligned and we're all in the same direction we can save our customers money we can do it more uh, more cleanly um you know more cost effectively it's that's the story we got to be you know pounding our fist on the table about thank you david Thank you, John. Thank you, Nick. Uh, really appreciate you doing this and look forward to uh, maybe have continuing this discussion over a cocktail at EEI next year. Sure thing, Anthony. Thanks a yeah, lot. Looking forward to that. Thanks. Thanks, Anthony. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.